The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. now in John 18. I'll pick up at verse 12 and read through 25. And I'll tell you as I develop this, John's account here is interesting because he puts the denials of Peter alongside this inquest where Jesus was uh, being subjected to an attempt to come up with a charge. But I'm really not focusing on what's happening to Jesus as much as what is happening to Peter. And I will bring in some of the things said in the other Gospels, especially Luke, and as a parallel. That would be Luke 22, if you're interested. It has a strong parallel account. Listen to God's Word, John chapter 18, verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. And it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. That, we believe, is John. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together, and I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong, but if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Again, Peter denied it. And at once, a rooster crowed. This is God's holy word. 
Failure is a life experience most of us are going to taste multiple times, sometimes in large, life-changing scales, other times in minor ways. The question in our lives, whether the failure is large or small, is will the failure be mingled with seeds of deep repentance in us that can allow the experience to be redeemed and used for God's good ends in our lives. As an illustration of how the high and mighty can fall, I have read that in 1928, one year before the stock market crash and the Great Depression of almost a century ago, there were seven American individuals gathered at a meeting in Chicago. These men I'm not going to go through their names because the names today wouldn't mean anything. In their day, their names meant a lot. These men pulled the strings of high finance in our country, both in the government, in stock markets, and in the treasury and other areas. And each of them were vastly wealthy individuals, the kind of wealth that Mr. Trump enjoys today, if not even greater. In fact, it was said that the gathering of those seven individuals was responsible for as much wealth or more than was controlled within the U.S. Treasury. Imagine that. A student in economics did a paper on some of these individuals and traced the further careers that these people had beyond 1928 until after World War II. Interestingly, here's what he found. Two of them died broke. Two others, including the former president of the New York Stock Exchange and a former treasury secretary, had spent time in prison. Three of them committed suicide. You don't think the high and mighty can have a great fall and experience great failure? That's only one small illustration of what we all can experience in various ways, not simply economic or career failure, but failure in our families, failure in our relationships, failure in fidelity to the covenant bonds we take on in this world. It's not a question of will we fail. It's a question of what will happen when we do. Will we receive any benefits from it that can strengthen our lives in Christ from that point onward, or will we simply waste the experience? We have in the Gospels the portrait of Simon Peter, of course. This particular account that John gives does not close with the words, Peter went out and wept bitterly, but all three other Gospels do. And so, for whatever reason, John didn't include it, but Peter certainly did go out and weep bitterly. If you look for a biblical failure to put beside Peter, I would much suggest perhaps the Old Testament example of Samson, a mighty man with a body of a football linebacker or better, eyes gouged out, hair shorn, in disgrace, pushing a mill wheel around for the amusement of his enemies disgraced and forlorn until the last moment of his life. You might want to think of King David. Nobody gouged his eyes out and no enemy took him prisoner, but David became prisoner of his own sin. 
is adultery, is treacherous, deceitful cover-up of a murder. And he, too, is a picture of failure. But the God of the Bible loves repentant failures. Not failures, period. Repentant failures. God delights in forgiving and restoring those men and women who know they have made some kind of a smash-up wreck of their life at some point or some issue or relationship. And he calls upon those to look to him for grace instead of wallowing in their despair. Humble failures are God's raw material for making great saints. I ask people, and I have when I've counseled them before, someone comes and perhaps confesses a a real downfall, a real big low point in their life, and I explore the dimensions of it with them a little bit. And uh, I've given people the assignment before and said, would you write all this down for me? I want you to bring it back in a short written form. You don't have to have a highly polished essay, but I want you to put on paper exactly how you failed, what happened, why it happened, what your feelings are. If you're making any excuses for what happened, write those down and give me a written account. Sometimes I think facing of your difficulty or your failure in that way has a therapeutic value of getting it out objectively in front of you. And I'm sure there are probably some of you here now that can face some failure recently in your life or maybe in the past year. It still tastes bitter to you. Some family relationship has gone awry. Some job didn't happen or fell apart. Maybe you're in the stage where you're also full of a lot of reasons, excuses, blame to shift on others for why things happened and poor you that it happened to you. The question I'm going to try to nudge you towards is, can you face your role in it without the blame shifting? Can you face what you did, how perhaps you disobeyed God? If you were writing it down, can you write down the commands of God that you disobeyed or the promises of God that you failed to believe? First of all, today I ask you to recognize that failure failure will overtake us all despite our strengths and even in the midst of our strengths. You know, there are those, I think, that imagine there's some class of human beings that are so successful, so intelligent, so on top of things, or so wealthy, that they just don't touch bottom. They don't have failures. What utter nonsense that is. I'd like to meet that person. I've never met them yet. I've been involved over the years with a a relatively large church staff of full-time and part-time folks who have to be replaced from time to time and doing a lot of job interviews. And I've developed some standard questions I want to know from people, regardless of what they're doing within the structure of the church, if they're going to be an associate pastor or a secretary or whatever. I ask this question of a applicant for the job or who's being interviewed. And I know a lot of others ask this. It's not unique to me. Tell me some important failure you've had. What did it teach you? Now, I listen for how long an applicant pauses over this. 
because sometimes they didn't expect that. Failure. Goodness, I don't want to tell you about failures. I'm here to portray myself as a success. But if they pause too long and cannot answer at all a question, tell me about some failure and what you learned from it, I begin to wonder, how much does this person really know about himself or herself? And if they can't answer it at all, I might consider very well hiring somebody else. After all, it's Simon Peter, the strongest spokesman, bold, brave disciple that fails so badly here in John 18 or Luke 22 and other parallels. Matthew and Mark have parallels as well. It wasn't one of the weak ones. You know, if it had been Bartholomew or one of those background disciples that we never really, we'd say, oh, well, okay, they, they never were of much account anyway. It was Peter. Peter, who had his name changed from Simon, meaning little stone, to Peter, rock. It was the rock, the future rock, that failed and failed miserably here. Yes, this chapter could be read about, and I could have easily preached a sermon about what was happening as the Jewish religious establishment was judging Jesus here as Annas, who was the real power behind the throne of the high priest. He was, after all, the father or father-in-law to five high priests in his lifetime. And, and look, he's the one that everybody goes to for a decision. Only after talking to him do they go to Caiaphas, the actual high priest. And yet nothing's decided. But important as that is, the real trials before Pilate, and we'll look at that, Lord willing. I want to look at Peter here. I want to first of all tell you that there are strengths in Peter that can be praised here. He's courageous. After all, we just saw him in the early part of the chapter pulling out that sword in the garden, striking with it, cutting off the ear of a man named Malchus. That required real boldness when faced with Roman troops armed and ready to take you down. Secondly, he was loyal to Christ. He was the one who asked one time when many were departing from the Lord, and Jesus challenged those who were with him and said, are you going to? And Peter, right away, without a thought, said, Lord, who would we go to? You have the words of eternal life. There isn't anybody else. So he had an exclusive loyalty. And thirdly, we would look to Peter for correct doctrine about Christ. He was the one who first made the declaration, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. His theology was certainly in a right place and, and dotted all the right I's and crossed all the T's. But strong people who are courageous and loyal and doctrinally straight can fall. And sometimes they fall harder than anybody, or appear to at least. It was tough, persistent, take charge Peter who broke under a sudden shot of temptation here. If he can, any of us can have this happen. So move from strengths and think about his weaknesses for a minute. And how the tempter, second of all, discovers us, our weaknesses in what appear to be strong lives. There are fatal weaknesses. One of the chinks in Peter's armor was certainly an overconfidence to get out beyond his depths. He had some little victories. It was kind of like a child who was taught how to swim in the two-foot-deep backyard pool, and he could actually paddle his way across the pool 30 feet. Wow, great 
victory. I can swim, Mom. And if he's old enough, he'd say, I heard there was a lady that swam the English Channel. I think I'll do that next week. How ridiculous. No small child who's learned to paddle across the 30-foot pool is going to swim the English Channel. But that's somewhat where Peter was. During the Civil War, I follow the life of a man. I don't know if this makes me popular in the North or not. I'm not really worried about it. One of the men I greatly admire that served in the Civil War is General Robert E. Lee. Yes, I understand he fought for a cause, which was not the right cause. But he was a man of character and a man of many things to be admired. But if you know the story of Gettysburg, you know that Robert E. Lee came to Gettysburg with a string of victories behind him. He almost seemed invincible. He was just amazing. He would come with troops often outnumbered three or four to one. He would dart here and go there and show up over here and win a victory, and the northern generals just would stand around scratching their heads and didn't seem to know how to deal with this man. One victory after another. But he came to Gettysburg, and there he was with his troops lined up on Seminary Ridge across from Cemetery Ridge, and General Longstreet came to consult with him the night before the the epic battle of July 3rd. And Lee was going to send Pickett's division across that huge empty wheat field. Nearly all of you have seen it, I'm sure. Maybe you've even seen the reenactments. And Lee thought the frontal attack was the way to do it. He could break the Union line. Longstreet begged the general, don't do this. It cannot succeed, General Lee. But some would say Lee was carried by his habit of winning and almost had thought that his troops could beat anyone or anything. He also had been ill, and maybe his judgment was clouded by his illness. But as Lee watched Pickett's division straggling back, not a division anymore, just a loose collection of wounded, bedraggled men, and knowing that he had lost the Battle of Gettysburg and that that, of course, you may know, led to the eventual downfall of the South. Lee was heard to say, sitting on his horse, all my fault. All my fault. And because of that, there was a redemption even in that defeat because the general learned from it. Here are some of the strikes against Peter, some of the weaknesses that we can see In the parallel account of Luke 22, Jesus gave Peter an advance warning. He said, Peter, Satan is looking to sift you like so much wheat. Sift you. You're reminded that he who thinks he stands should beware lest he fall. And also, Jesus reminded Peter in the other gospel accounts paralleling John 18, that he failed to pray. He said, Peter, I call you to pray. I'm going over here to pray. You need to pray. Well, Peter slept, as you know. And isn't it true that we do most of our praying only after the crisis has struck? Oh, no! Look what happened. I better pray. Jesus calls us to a constancy in prayer that would often forearm and forewarn us of crises coming. 
But you know, the greatest weakness of Peter was a very subtle thing. He feared human opinion too much. We're told that the scene is brought to life. As we're told, there was a charcoal fire there. You can visualize it. It's two or three o'clock in the morning, a cold night. Servants and soldiers are out there because of the unusual activity going on. Everybody's trying to warm themselves. Peter's in a place he doesn't belong. He got in there by knowledge of John, who had some tie to the family of the high priest and was allowed into the enclosure. Well, here's a wealthy man's house, probably smaller in area, the whole place, than the ground floor of our sanctuary here. And at the center of it was a courtyard, and at the front was a wide porch with columns. Jesus was probably being interrogated in the courtyard, more or less in the center, with the house in a sort of a C-shape or U-shape around it and the porch across the front. And there would be people watching from the porch who could look right into the courtyard as Jesus was questioned by Annas there in his wealthy home. Consider the depths here. You know, when you really consider what, Peter, what brought Peter down, it was what a young girl thought about him. Now think of that. This guy's bold. This guy's ready to pull his sword out and go after somebody. But he's afraid of what a young girl thinks about him, a young girl he doesn't know who can't directly do anything to him. And she asks what appears to be a relatively tentative question. Isn't, am I possibly correct that you are one of his disciples? No, you're wrong. Why did he even need to bother to say that? I mean, after all, this is a guy who's ready to fight his way out of there if he had to. Did it really matter what a young girl at the gate thought? But isn't it revealing that we all care deeply what other people think about us, even people we don't know? We posture for them. We want, you know, to put across a certain impression of ourselves, even if we'll never see that person again. We want them, if they remember us at all, to remember the certain facade that we put up about ourselves. And so quickly and easily he says, no, I'm not, you're wrong, not me. You see, I think we're afraid to be found that we are cut out of the same bolt of cloth as Jesus Christ. It's a distinctive bolt of cloth that the average person in this world is not cut from. And sometimes people sense it or they realize it and they say, well, he's, I don't know what it is, but he's different. She's different. She's not like the others in the office. She's not like the other nurses on the staff. What, I haven't got my hand on what it is yet, but that person's different. And we don't want anybody to think that. Perish the thought that they should think we're different. And so Peter utters his first denial, and of course you're trapped. Once you make the first, if you're asked the second question, you've got to say again, no, not me. I already told you. And then you're asked again, and the other parallel texts say, he didn't just say, no, I'm not. He said it vehemently with a curse. Stop bothering me. I'm not that man. And with a sense of literary drama, the Holy Spirit guided John to say immediately, at once, a rooster crowed. Because Jesus had said, before it crows, you will deny me three times. 
What may we learn from this? Certainly it was a learning experience for Peter, but I would suggest it should be for us. There are notes of grace here that may come into our lives if we would observe them. First of all, don't miss a guarantee, and it's not in John, it's in Luke 22. I'm using John as a framework here and bringing into it some of the things said in the parallel accounts. Luke 22, verse 32, tells us that at a little bit earlier time, this same evening, Jesus had said to him, Simon, Simon, why do you call him Simon? I thought he had renamed him Peter. Was he possibly saying, little stone, little stone, you and your weakness, I've got a warning for you. Satan has demanded to have you, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. What a wonderful thing to have heard that. Here's Jesus knowing everything. Our Sunday school class I'm leading was talking this morning about the omniscience of God. Well, here's the Son of God saying, I know what's coming to you. I know how it's going to turn out exactly. It would be good if you listened to me. Satan has demanded to have you, but I have prayed for you, and when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. Wow. If God could tell me that, you know, something terrible is coming. I've upheld you with my prayer. You're going to turn back. You're going to make it through. You're going to become a redemptive voice at the end of it. I think I could get through just about anything if I heard that. But Peter didn't hear it. He didn't hear, I have prayed for you. He didn't link that, as we're able to do with the fullness of God's Scripture, with Hebrews 7.25 that says he always lives to make intercession for us. He didn't link that to 1 John 2.1, even though this is John writing who wrote that letter later on after this gospel, to say we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. You know, the if you even have a phone book anymore, some don't. I had to go looking about our offices for a phone book this week. Finally found one. And I was reminded that on the phone book, on the spine and on the cover and on the back, we've got attorneys probably paying a lot of money to be in that position Why? Because they want to be our advocate. If we're in trouble, if we have a car accident, we suffer something criminal, need an attorney, they want us to call them. Let me be your advocate. Well, we have an advocate. And that advocate is Jesus Christ, the righteous, who prays for us even before we enter into things that we don't know are coming to us. He sustains us. He maintains his work of grace in us by his prayer. Well, not only do we need to learn that Jesus has prayed for us, but we need to learn that Jesus Christ is prepared to show infinite forgiveness and spiritual grace to failures who will acknowledge what they are. Again, Luke has something that we need to bring as a parallel to get this complete picture. Luke twenty-two sixty-one reports this. Now, if you can, remember the architecture of the house. If Jesus is standing kind of down here in the middle of the courtyard, it's open between there and the porch where many are standing around, soldiers and other onlookers that can see. All Jesus would have to do is maybe make a half turn for his eyes to connect with the eyes of Peter 30, 30, 40 feet away. 
And nobody would even realize that he was looking at him particularly. But Peter would. And Luke twenty-two sixty-one says Jesus turned and looked straight at Peter. God's Word doesn't report these kinds of details for nothing. You see, here was a gaze from the one who, the Scripture says, knew what was inside of a man. Jesus knew exactly what was inside of Peter. And the look, I don't guess, lasted very long. It could have been seconds, ten seconds or less. And I don't think I'm I'm making something up to tell you that it was a look that went right through the man, piercing through him, like a sword almost, and yet at the same time with a kind of healing balm to it. I believe it was a look that saved Peter's life. Because I don't know any reason why, other than that look, Peter didn't go out and do what his fellow disciple Judas had done, take a rope, find a tree, and hang it yourself and end your miserable life of being treacherous against Jesus. But you know he didn't do that. All the other gospels say he went out and he wept bitterly. And he spent two or three days, of course, through the cross and the resurrection in bitterness. But, well, if you need the preview, I'll just tell you briefly. We have chapter 21 coming to us some week down the road here after Easter. You know what chapter 21 of John is about? It's about a fire, another campfire, the only two campfires in the gospel. It's about a fire on the beach. It's about a breakfast. And it's about a restoration. As Jesus restored his bitterly wounded disciple. There is, you see, in the Bible what we call godly sorrow that yields repentance. It's not the same as Judas's sorrow. Judas's sorrow was just, boy, I didn't expect it was going to come to this. I, didn't, I, I thought maybe Jesus would be stirred to action and would get out there and declare himself the Messiah. I didn't think it was going to end this way. His sorrow was all bitterness and self-recrimination. Peter's was a depth of sorrow before God at having sinned against God. And yet Psalm 37, 24 says, When a godly man falls, he shall not be hurled down headlong because the Lord is the one who upholds him. The Lord was supervising this failure of Peter's. So couldn't we make the transition and say if he supervised Peter's failure and had redemption at the end of it for a man who was humbled and recognized his own part in it that he does not supervise our failures? There's a prophecy in Isaiah 42 verse 4 where we read that a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench. The least spark of true repentance God can use in failure restorations. You see, it's godly sorrow that works repentance that he's after. It's Psalm 51 repentance that let me hear joy and gladness again. Let the bones you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquity. It's the kind of repentance in which you, in a sense, become your own prosecutor. You hold up to yourself that from the Word of God and say, look what I've done. 
I've betrayed God. I've disobeyed his commandment here. I, I, I've cheated on my wife. I name it what it is. And I, I see the condemnation of it, and I hold it up to my own face. And I don't say, oh, you have to understand the pressure I was under or what this person did to me or, or how circumstances were aligned. No. I did it. That's what was involved in Peter going out and weeping bitterly. He put himself in the docket and condemned himself as guilty. But that's not a hopeless situation, you see. That's a situation where somebody's ready to look their Savior in the eye and say, Lord, my God, I agree with your condemnation of me. I realize I'm to blame. And Father, I don't deserve anything, but I come to you with this smashed up situation in my life. And I offer you who I am. I know you died with me on your heart. Is it possible your death and your resurrection and your sweet flow of forgiving grace was designed to cover this failure of mine? Folks, if you will come to that place, you will find what Peter found. Maybe a time of some bitterness, a time of living with the regret and and not thinking anything can turn around from it, but you will be coming to Christ, the failure restorer, who can make you strong and make you whole at the very place where you were broken the worst. Try it. You'll find out that Peter's experience is still true. May God bless you in the failure that you humbly repent for before the throne of Jesus Christ. Father, some here must need this. Somebody's thinking they've really just made the most awful mess. They're ashamed of a course of action they've been going down, maybe thinking it's secret from a lot of people, and maybe right now it is. It's not secret from you. I pray, O oh God, that you would meet us in our smash-ups morally and spiritually. Remind us you're the God of the new beginning, the God of sin forgiven, the God of sin put as far away from us as the east is from the west. Lead us to this new beginning that Peter found. We will seek to praise your name, the all-adequate name of a Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.